I just want you to know that last week we put up what the general fund, the ministry fund, this is an education insert, and uh, she showed us on this little chart, just want to educate. You know, some of you say, well, I've known this stuff. Well, good. I have too. But we got new people all the time, and some you've never been taught giving. You just tip. You don't know. You just grew up in church. You just dropped three bucks, and, but you've never been taught to give. But we're hoping God does teach you that. But we want to educate you that uh, in this church, there's basically four funds that you can give to. Uh, our general fund, which is ministry. Uh, Mission Possible, which pays for our buildings. Uh, the capital overhead, the mortgage, that type thing. And we always try to accelerate the payoff. So we do stewardship programs to try to knock it out as quick as we can. Uh, then we have World Outreach, which is missions. And uh, be sure to hear our brother and sister from Mexico next week. And then our Agape Fund, our church gives out about $50,000 a year to help people in dire straits, in hard places. Uh, it's not budgeted. Uh, you just give it, and our brothers distribute it. Now, what's nice, if you open this up, right there, that full page, that tells you all the places that general fund ministry money goes to. Those are the things it underwrites. Uh, it's like uh, we had certain people from different churches. They came to the uh, Thursday night children's program. They said, our church doesn't do it anymore. And yours is free. I asked some adults that were there, do you always go around to churches bumming candy? <laughs> you know, but they were there. But it was underwritten by general fund. Uh, well, it's a, a thousand contacts worth it. Yeah. <laughs> you may think so, may not. We talk about evangelism. We actually think God can save children. We actually think God can do that. If he can't, we're wasting our time and our money, and we ought to fire everybody teaching a Sunday school class this morning. It's a waste of time, but it's not. It's not, especially if it's your kid. Um, and so, we just want to put this in your Bible and pray. You know, if you don't have it, can you pray? Will you pray? And let's ask our God of these awesome songs we sang today. He's a provider. He's awesome. He's awesome. So, we put it in his hands. Turn to Isaiah 40. Um, I hope to go to John 15 next week uh, and resume, John. Um, I thought of last week, do you ever get tired of God? God forbid. Do you ever get tired in serving God? We all do, one way or the other, uh, from time to time. Then I got to thinking, does God ever get tired of us? And you know what he does? And let me show you a verse uh, to back this up. Look at Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43, verse 24. Well, we'll go back to 22. You did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not bought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. They were giving them to the idols. God was being whacked off. But you have burdened me with your sins. You have... Mm. Does God ever get weary of you? He, he got weary of them always. The only time they showed up is when they sinned. They didn't show up to make an offering, a worship, thank you offering. It was their sins is all they ever put on God. And just give you another example. Look at Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. Chapter 2, verse 17. 
Malachi. Some feel he's Italian. That would make it Malachi. Uh, but uh, 2.17, you have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. What a day. And he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? He's tired of you calling evil good. He's weary of it. Someone asked me the other day, how did I know when a when most politicians were lying. I said, when their lips are moving. <laughs> uh, your hopes in politics? Get used to put, get used to being lied to. We don't know who's telling the truth anymore. Not in the public square. But now we come to something here in Isaiah 40. Let me give you the setting. Uh, the prophet has given us 39 chapters of dismal judgment. And if you read through the Bible like Carolyn and I do, we dread the Isaiah 1 through 39 devotion reading. Say, what did you read for devotion today? How God's going to kill Edom. How he's going to knock off the Philistine. Man, that encourages me. Maybe he's going to knock off my neighbor. I mean, it, it's pretty dismal stuff. And especially, I don't like the way the navigator's doing it now. They set you up for Isaiah in the morning and Jeremiah in the evening. Uh, any on the reading chart? You're sure depressed. Because it's judgment, judgment. But when we come to chapters 40 through 66, Isaiah is prophesying the Babylonian captivity of Israel and their return from the exile and coming back. It's prophetic. He's not even alive when it's fulfilled. Because he's back here. Assyria took on the northern tribes about 606. Judah went into captivity about 586 B.C. Isaiah's already passed away. And, but he writes as a prophetic future. This is what God's going to say to the returning exiles from Babylon and even those taken into captivity. And he starts out. And he says, I want you to tell my people how great a God I am. The God they traded for the gods of Babylon and Assyria. They made a trade. Jeremiah 2 said, has anybody ever heard of a people trading in their God? And he says, Israel, you've traded me in. You gave up your glory. And so he's going to talk about his majesty because he's in the First part, he's trying to comfort a weary, exiled, uh, persecuted people. All oh, they suffer immensely at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar and that captivity. And then he's going to tell them, uh, how can such a majestic God have such a weak people? And we'll look at that. And then finally, he's going to deal with the subject just because God is great is not comforting unless he's gracious. To know that my enemy is great is no comfort. It just increases my fear. Just to know the doctor graduated at the top of his class, but I can't afford him, doesn't give me any hope. And so Isaiah at the end says, God wants you to know his greatness can be accessed because he's gracious to his weak people. Let's look at his greatness, the majesty of God, and it's said in order to comfort these people. Look at Isaiah. We're going to cover 31 verses, so get ready to move. And you, that your hands are frozen, you fill in the blanks. You did like that, okay? Uh, he says, comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. She's paid for all of her sins. I'll see to it. I'm going to take her into captivity. I'm going to let her be under Marduk, the Babylonian god. I'm going to let you live under these pagans that you have fallen in love with. And you're going to pay. You're going to suffer. And finally now, 
God sends a message through Isaiah. Tell them when they've come back, I'm done dealing with their rebellion and sin. The exile will have done its job. Comfort my people. Comfort my people. And so he tells them in verses 1 and 2, relief is coming. Uh, I want you to be comforted. Then in verses 3 through 5, he said, Messiah is coming. Uh, the exile hasn't got rid of Messiah. John the Baptist is coming. He's going to say, prepare you the way of the Lord. So I just want you to know the Messiah is on target. He's still coming no matter your backsliding, your exile. Comfort them. He says in verses 6 through 8, man is fading like the grass in the morning that's gone at night, but the word of the Lord will never fade. It endures forever. So everything God has said in his word to you, to Abraham, to David, to Jeremiah, that word you can count on, it doesn't go out of season, it doesn't die. The word of the Lord is forever. Comfort my people. Have them run to my promises. Then he tells them that go up on the high mountain, tell Jerusalem, behold your God, and tell them I'm going to carry them like a lamb, like a shepherd carries a lamb, and I'm going to guide them. Tell my people they're as vulnerable, as nearsighted, as helpless, as uh, dumb, as wayward as a sheep, but I have volunteered to be the shepherd. And the sheep get from here to there, not based on their intelligence, not based upon their ability to protect, not based on, they get there because they're in the shepherd's care. Tell Israel, tell Judah, I am going to carry them as a lamb in my arms. He's trying to comfort his people. Tell them that. Well, he goes on, and uh, he tells them, uh, I, I love this, because in chapter 46, he said, I carry my people here. 46, he said, you carry your idols. And he talks about Baal. And he talks about this nearly topples over. And you have to get strong oxen. And you have to nail it down. You've got to take care of your gods. You've got to take care of them. Isn't it amazing how much energy you spend waxing, insuring, and taking care of your gods? It takes a lot of money to be a good idol worshiper. A lot of investment. And no return, because remember, these idols can't talk, they can't walk, they can't even keep from stumbling if the ox doesn't watch. And he writes in chapter 46, 43, your idols make you look stupid. Men are carving them out of wood, they're putting a little gold. If they're, you know, if their 401k is doing good, you put a little gold on it. If you're a poor boy, you just use wood. This is your God. This is what you picked over me, Israel. Well, I carry you. I'm not asking you to carry me. Get, get this in your mind. Hear me. God is self-sufficient. He needs nothing in the created order. He doesn't need angels. He doesn't need matter. He doesn't need space. He doesn't need geography. He doesn't need you or me. Sometimes people have this, we meet a need in God. What need do you meet in God? You've been a liability ever since he started with you. You consume resources. You don't feel anything. And they say, well, why did God create me if I don't feel a need? Wasn't he lonely back there? No. There's always been a family. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Uh, well, did the father ever get worshipped? Yes, he had two members of the Godhead that worshipped him. What about the son? The other two members worshipped the son. Well, uh, well, well, there's something in you. One thing they didn't have back here is any manifestation of grace. Because when you have unfallen perfect beings, they never need grace. So God says, 
I'm going to show creation something about me that they would never guess in a million years. I'm going to let angels fall. I'm, and get this, in my grace, I will not rescue them. I will not rescue angels. But man made a little bit lower. When he sins and blow it, I'm going to rescue him. Not because I need him. I'm going to show him how great I am. I made man to show off my greatness. And like service, giving offerings. God just included you in the program to make you a part of something great. He's doing the pulling. He's got the yoke. You know, I think of my little Elizabeth. When we, I used to be in the backyard, her especially. Deborah wasn't inclined to yard work. But uh, uh, Elizabeth would come. I remember she's little, about two years old. And I'd be working, doing some yard work. And even A.J. does this. They'll come, get a hold of the rake, and let me help you rake. Help me rake. You're costing me time, honey. Get out. But you can't say that because you're a godly man. And, and, and pretty soon, they go back in the house. Mom, I helped Daddy. They helped Daddy? No, 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 no. But, but you, you lied to them. Thanks for your help. You know, they, they just touched the rake. Thanks for your help. Get in the house and get with your mother. See, God's letting you get in on his program, but he doesn't need you. You need him. He's the first one I ever tied up with that's got anything worth living for. He's the only one doing a project that when the world's on fire and passes away with fervent heat, what we're investing in, you can't burn up. It's going to last forever. Because I'm going to a city whose foundations are in the heavens, and they can't be touched by fire. You better say amen. You've never been a part of anything great. Your family, blue bloods, bunch of hoodlums, <laughs> bunch of poor folks, bunch of this. And that. All of a sudden, I'm in a royal family. I'm now related to Abraham. I'm related to Jacob. Hey, David, I'm going to be in the kingdom, and don't boss me around because I'm the wife of the king. I'm the bride of Christ. Don't be issuing any orders to me. I go direct to Messiah. How did this Gentile boy get to the table? He included me, and he included you. We're at the table. I work with a lot of precious Jewish people, and I always tell them, I'm no goyim, stupid Gentile. I'm a son of God, and I'm at the table, and don't treat me like uh, I'm a stepchild because I got birthrights to be at this table. I came through Messiah. I got to calm down. I got a lot more ground to cover. If they don't like it, they just... Mm. <laughs> now, he's going to tell them, show my people who I am. And he gives this way, tell them the task that I perform. Verses 12 through 14. What can our God do? Well, look at this, 12 through 14. He's measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. That's this, right in here. Wait, 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 wait. God, you know how much water is in the Atlantic and the Pacific and the Indian Ocean and the Mediterranean. You, you, you know that. <laughs> you want me to believe that? Yeah. It's a figure of speech, right? Just figure it out. That is what I am to all the waters of the earth. They just fit in my palm. And if you ask me how many gallons, I could tell you. Not bad. Then, what else? Oh, enclose the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and hills in a balance. Wait, wait, wait. You're telling me, Isaiah, that this God of Israel has taken all the mountains of the earth and, as it were, put them in a scale, and he can tell you what they weigh. 
Anybody ever gone over the Continental Divide in the Rockies? Ever been there? It's majestic. The Rockies, the Sierras. Now, these are just, you know, these aren't the Alps. These aren't the Himalayas. But God says, I can tell you what they weigh. I weigh them. Imagine the immense infinitude and greatness of this God. Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? And taught him knowledge? And showed him the way of understanding? He's never booked a consultant appointment. Nobody has taught God anything ever. He knows everything And he knew you before you existed. And still went ahead and let you be born. Mm. God, if I knew what my kids were going to do, I don't know if I'd had any, you know. Your parents talk that way. God says, I know the end from the beginning. I don't need time to find out. I don't go to school. I know it all. Nobody has consulted me. This is how you ought to make a hippopotamus. Oh, by the way, if you do the mountains, I'd do it this way. Who? Who said it? No one's consulted him. I don't take in advice. I give it. So quit trying to teach God in your prayers. He already knows. Just show up and say, I'm in a mess, and I need help. He said, I knew it. Thanks for showing up. And look, then he goes on and talks about the nations. The nations are like a drop from a bucket. China, you mean, with a billion people? India, with a billion? They're a drop. Are I counted as the dust on the scales? Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. And then that great nation of Lebanon, Lebanon's where the uh, cedars were grown and where fat cattle grew up. It was a very uh, uh, prosperous land, and that's where they went to get lumber. And he said, if you run up to Lebanon and you cut down every tree and you kill all the bulls of Bashan, you can't build a fire big enough and put enough animals on an altar to even come up to what I'm worth. What you are trying to impress, I'm beyond being impressed. I'm great. You see, I made all those trees grow. I'm the one that let all those cattle be born. He said, don't look to the nations, they're passing. Then he said, the great men of the earth, the great men of the earth. He compares them, first of all, with idols. He said, uh, Look at this, verse 18. To whom then will you liken God? See, God was always competing for their attention, so they're comparing him to the other gods. Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? (laughs) A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot, You don't want your God to rot. You just can't have a rotten God. He seeks out skilled craftsmen to set up an idol that will not move. But they did move, didn't they? You remember when the Philistines set up Dagon? When at his temple they put the ark And the next day, Dagon was on its face. It's hard for idols to hang out with God. They don't do good. They topple. It it just, the ground gets kind of unsettled. Then he goes on about the great men of the earth. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. This is the world. It looks like grasshoppers to it. 
who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing. Not only are the people of the world like grasshoppers. Now in 23, 24, he says, he brings princes to nothing. He makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted. John F. Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, Martin, Alexander wept when he was 29 that there were no more worlds to conquer and died. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. Oh, you princes of the earth, wherever we find you, Saddam, we'll find you hiding like a rat in a hole in the ground. You that could liquidate Iranians and rattle your sword and invade Kuwait, your days will be few, for you will not only be hiding like a rat, we'll hang you. Your days are numbered. Nebuchadnezzar, you won't last. Oh, Sennacherib, oh, let's go up and invade Jerusalem. And when he does it, he starts taunting Hezekiah and telling them, we're going to wipe you out. And poor old Hezekiah says, please don't talk to us in Hebrew. It's going to scare everybody on the wall. They hear this, and he said, our God, Isaiah's right, this, and tell them our God will deliver. And they yell back and said, oh, that's what all the other kingdoms have said. Their gods will deliver. Don't be stupid enough to think your God will deliver. Your God and you will fall like the rest. Strange things happen in the night, though. 185,000 of them killed that night. And Sennacherib goes back to his homeland where his boys take up their knives and kill their dad in the temple. It's a dangerous thing to mock God. The God of Israel is not like the God of any other country. This is the awesome God. This is the great God. This is the God that Sennacherib, tonight you and your army will flee. I'm in charge. Kings, politicians, the great men of the earth. And we all get all the, oh, and we want this one in the, don't get married to him, honey. Strokes come to even rulers. Castro, he's lived a long time, but he's sure fading. Not the big threat. I think of old Herod in the book of Acts when they started calling him a god. He said, bring it on, bring it on. So I am. And then Flavius Josephus said, the end of the man was his bowels came out of his body as the worms ate his insides. For God said, any man that thinks he's a god, I'll turn him into food for worms. And he died an excruciating death. The man enacted, I am a god. Your intestines will be on the ground. Who do you think you are, little man, little speck, to defy God, to flip him off? I defy you to mess with me. I'm my own God. You're but a vapor, and you're but the grass that's going to be cut down. I cut rulers down. I cut men down. I will take care of you. If I have to put Capone on the rock at Alcatraz, you're not going to, you think you're running Chicago in the universe. I'm going to let syphilis and Alcatraz end your life. You're messing with God. And young people, young people, don't listen to all these pagan songs and this pagan attitude. God, we're cool, we're bouncing. You know what? They die at 20. They die at 15. People go to hell at 14. They go to hell at 12. They go to hell at 9. Oh, do not, do not defy this God. Your breath, your very, whether you wake up in the morning will be up to his choice. And as Jonathan Edwards says, you are suspended over the mouth of hell on a thin 
spider web that can break any moment, and you're walking over a thin thatch roof of which you can break through any moment into eternity. Only God is keeping you upside on this earth. Only God. That's why God said, don't fear man, fear me. Don't be afraid of man. I could cut off his breath like that. Tell my people they need comfort. Tell them who they gave up and who they're going to get back when I get them back in the land. The nations. Now he talks about the weakness of God's people. Number one, he calls them sheep. That's always a declaration of weakness and dependence. Uh, weak in need of provision, guidance, everything. But then you, you follow them. That we're not only like sheep that can get lost. We're people, believe it or not, who question God all the time. And especially when hard times come, we got a lot, a thousand questions. Three questions Israel was asking God. Three questions. Verse 25. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Israel was comparing their God, Yahweh, to Marduk, an idol. The idol, the primary idol of Babylon. This verse is, verse is confusing. I should be like him. Who's the him? Most likely the idols. Marduk, the leading one. What, what are you doing comparing me to the mere idols of Babylon? Hear me. Luther said it to Erasmus. Your ideas of God are too small. Tozer said it this way. Whatever comes to a man's mind when you mention God is the greatest revealer of that man's knowledge of God. What do you think of when you say God? J.B. Phillips years ago wrote a book called Your God is Too Small. Problems tend to make us shrink God. We bring him down to the size of our problem. And he's telling them, who are you comparing me to? You're acting like I'm just any old God. I, I, I'm helpless like these idols you're comparing me to. Why do you do that? Second question they ask, verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? They're being self-occupied. My problem, my woe. You forgot about me, Lord. You forgot my phone number, my street address. You don't care. You're not involved. Where are you? Have you forgotten me? They get wrong interpretation of what they are in God's sight. And they're saying, you just wrote us off. You've just forgotten us. The exile, 70 years in Babylon, where are you? You have forgotten us. And in our heartbreaks and our trials, sometimes we take that, why hasn't God showed up? Where is he? Where is he? God had said in Isaiah 49, 15, he asked Israel this question. Can a nursing mother ever forget her child? And he said, she may forget, meaning she does. And when you read Lamentations chapter 2 and chapter 4, you find out it said fine women of Israel would eat their own children. And they did. Under the siege, they became cannibalistic. And wonderful, finely cultured women devoured their children just like the Donner Party. When you're under a siege... You haven't had any food in the city for two months. Believe it or not, even a fine woman could think about devouring her baby. But God said, oh, Israel, my love is stronger for you than that of a woman for a baby. 
Then he says, for you see, I've engraved you in the palm of my hands. And the word for engraved was used for chiseling in stone. It was used of chiseling in city walls, city doors. It was used of carving wood, chisel, hammer, chisel. And he said, Israel, every time I look at my hands, I remember you. You're forever before me. And let me tell you where God chiseled you primarily. At an old rugged cross is where he chiseled me into his hand. And the wounds that were meant to extinguish him was the chisel God used to put my name in his Lamb's book of life forever. I've been chiseled into the hand of God. This God can never forget me nor release his grip on me. He's paid too big a price to lose me. I'm chiseled. I'm chiseled. Cut out engraved in the hand of God. Don't ever say, God's forgot you. Impossible. Third thing he says, question they ask, verse 28, have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He's saying, have you forgot how majestic your God is? Have you forgot I'm the sustainer of the universe? Have you found out I don't go work out in the gym to stay in health? I never get tired. I didn't take the seventh day off in creation because I was tired. I just set a pattern for you. You're going to need rest. I don't get tired. God never gets tired. Omnipotence never wears out. And he says, but you forgot that. Uh, you're acting like uh, the idols you've been hanging out with. You've reduced me. Now, he says, let me tell you of the grace I want to show you, the grace I want to give to my needy people. And he tells them three things. Number one, God says, I want to give you my power and strength in the midst of your trial. Anybody here care to have that? How would you feel like I could bring my weakness to God and he'll offer his strength? You mean that's, that's what you're offering? Yes. I don't faint, you are fainting. I don't get weary, you do get weary. And let me tell you these two words, faint and weary. The word faint comes from a Hebrew word to uh, what happens when you haven't had water and food. You're becoming faint. Weakness is setting in, but it's lack of nourishment. God is saying, uh, I'm well nourished. I don't need water. I don't need food. I don't need you. But you're wore out. You've been on that desert. You've been going without water, maybe, without food. You're famished. You're barely making it. Two, the word weary means toil, work, wore out from exertion. Israel, hear me. I'm not about to faint. I'm not exhausted. I'm not giving out. And I'm not too tired from what I've been holding up the stars, the Milky Way, the whole universe. I'm not tired. I don't get tired. And I'm telling you, I'm willing to pour my strength into you. Second thing, but you've got to do something. What's that? He says, I'll pour this strength into you, and I want to renew you. The word for renew, is it in your Bible? Let's see. He goes on. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Now, he says God does this. Then he says, don't be upset if you're fainting. Even young men are fainting. And it's the idea they were young enough to be in military. They're fainting. They're weary, they're stumbling, they're exhausted. But those who wait for the Lord. Now, what does the word wait mean for? It's a synonym word. In Hebrew, the word faith has a family of synonyms. Kyle and Delich, if you wanted the reference, the book of Isaiah. He said that faith had a family of synonyms, and the synonyms were Hope, longing, 
uh, reliance, uh, looking to. And so many, you see in the Bible, Psalms 25, I waited on the Lord. It means in faith, I was longing for the Lord. In faith, I was hoping, I was expecting him to come through. It's a description of I'm waiting on God in faith. I'm looking to God. I'm trusting, hoping, longing. Not passive. Well, I'm waiting on the Lord. No, 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 no. No, no, no. This isn't talking about uh, Rip Van Winkle going to sleep. Let's talk about active waiting, active pursuing, active believing. I will wait on you, Lord. And when you wait on the Lord, he said he will do something. He will renew your strength. What in the world, what is it when he renews your strength? Well, it comes from an interesting uh, word. It means to exchange. You got that? Let, let me give you what it means. Uh, it has the idea of changing from old clothes to new clothes. It has the idea of exchanging weakness and fainting for omnipotent strength. You make an exchange when you wait on him. An exchange is going to happen. He's going to take your weakness. He's going to take your inability, your inexhaustion. And when he pours his strength into those who wait, you will exchange weakness for strength. You'll exchange inability for ability. You'll exchange the fainting for the soaring. You'll make an exchange. Wait, wait on the Lord. And he says it throughout the Psalms. The death of modern church life is few wait on God. They just want a quick fix on Sunday and get me out of here so I can see the game at one. You know what? That's why you stay burdened. Your God is available, but he's not in a hurry. As long as you want to carry it, as long as you want to keep it on you, go ahead. Go ahead. He will keep his strength to himself. He only gives it to those who are trusting him, relying on him, waiting on him. And then, what did he say he would do? Let us see here. He said, I'll give you enablement in three areas. Number one, I'll enable you to do the impossible. Mount up with wings as an eagle. None of us know how to fly. He said, you wait on me, and it will be as though you're flying. I'm going to overcome every obstacle that seems impossible for you. Wait on me and see what I can do. Two. I will let you overcome the normal fatigue that comes from exertion, like running. I'll let you run and not get tired. I'll let you run and you won't feel spent. I'll let you run. Thirdly, I'll let you walk with me all of your life. You'll mount up with wings as eagle. You'll run. And I have to read something that Dr. John Watts, I've heard it before, but I found it in print, that he says this about the soaring eagle, that what he's really saying, stretch out your pinions, your wings, stretch them out on Jehovah. You're waiting on him, and you, you've taken the posture of that eagle, I'm just stretching out my wings. And he said, you do that, and I'll make you soar. Now listen to what Watts says. The figure of the eagle's wings is apt. The soaring eagle is borne aloft, not by his powerful wings, but by the wind's currents lifting his rigid pinions. Those waiting are those prepared to be lifted up and carried aloft by the Spirit of God in his time and in his way. I come, I'm spread out, I'm waiting on Jehovah. 
that word I trust, I got my nose to the ground. I'm, I'm stretched out on God. I have no power over the situation. And sometimes all of a sudden you feel yourself being lifted, lifted. And we used to sing an old song, lift me up above the shadows where the pure sunshine is found. All of a sudden I said, I feel like I'm soaring. I just had a prayer meeting. What is it? The wind of the Spirit takes this poor, fatigued, fainting, weak believer, and all of a sudden the power of the Spirit lifts you up above it all, and you're up there just gliding, riding the wind, riding the wind. You know, uh, I keep forgetting. I had to ask Carolyn. You know, we have some fruit trees in the backyard, and we watch every once in a while these hummingbirds. They're fascinating, aren't they? A lot of hummingbirds remind me of people like you, always going. You know, humming, humming. But I've never seen an eagle out in the forest. But we have hawks that also fly over there. And, and I, there, it's totally two different worlds, the hummingbird and the hawk. Well, if you looked at a California condor, one guy said, do you know what an eagle tastes like? He said, I don't, but California condor is great. You know, so uh, either way, you know. If you were astute, you would get that. It's a great <laughs> line. Uh, what it's saying is the wind and birds of prey, even our owls out here, the way they glide, looking for a mouse, you know, looking for something to eat. They just can glide, and they're looking. What keeps him up there? Wind current. He's telling his people, you can't imagine it, but if you just stretch out on me, I'll provide the wind. I'll provide the current. I'll lift you up. I'll enable you to uh, run. I'll enable you to walk. I think about walking. You know, uh, George Patterson passed away uh, Friday. Uh, with the Lord in his 70s. And uh, we had Bud Hughes in his 80s, had his funeral yesterday. Uh, it's something to see some saints that run. It's another thing to see some saints. How long have you been walking with the Lord? 50 years? 60? Why are you still walking? I'm still waiting. I still wait on the Lord. We got 90 years old. Uh, the book that we hope it's on order, when it gets here, the book that you'll get to read, my precious Betty at 90 years of age transcribed it. 90. Loves the Word of God as much today as any newborn believer here. She loves to transcribe the tapes because she says, I get to feed on the Word all the time. Betty, haven't you got it by now? Get over it. Get over it. You don't need to still be learning. You don't need to still be walking. We got young people around here fainting. Young men are washing out. Who is it that makes you keep going year after year after year after year? I'm, I'm looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. I'm waiting for my change to come. I ain't stopping. I ain't going back. I'm walking. I'm walking. I hope to run. And I want to fly. Where do you get it? If you'll wait on me, I'll pour my strength into you. If you just stay tired, stay. For, now, God may tell you, you need to knock out doing 80 uh, minutia things that don't amount to anything anyway. Wait on me. But what do we do? My schedule's so busy, I can't wait on him. I got to get something done for Jesus. What? You got to do what? McGee used to say most church members are as busy as termites and just as destructive. <laughs> if you're not abiding in him, you can't get anything done for him. Who do you think you are? You get something done for omnipotence. You think God is worried? Like the unsaved, we want to evangelize because we want to obey. But guess what? I don't care what you think about this statement. Everybody that he chose from the foundation of the world, somebody's going to lead him to the Lord. Would you like to be a part of it? That's the privilege. They will be there. There won't be any blood on my hands. 
because he didn't put them in my hands. He says, I will save. Well, you notice that famous, famous drawing about the footprints in the sand. You know why you've come so far? You've been carried. And when you get wore out, you get fatigued, all he's saying is, you know why God lets you worry? You know why he lets you have fear? He hadn't heard from you lately. Anxiety and fear is God's side of saying, I'd like to talk with you, and I know you won't come until you get worried. I'll take you on any terms. Show up. Well, Lord, things are kind of going good. I noticed you haven't showed up lately. You know what? Wait, and you can soar. The wind will bear you up. Wait, and you can run, and you won't have fatigue. Wait, you can walk and walk, and until you take your last breath, they'll ask you, what were you doing? He said, I was walking towards the city. I've been walking with him many years. Anybody get saved in the 50s? Anybody alive in the 50s? Oh, five of you, good. Us guys that I don't see walking that I used to walk with, but it doesn't make any difference. I'm counting on omnipotence to get there. And he said, you can have all my power if you're willing to wait, if you're willing to trust, if you're waiting to just draw from me. And the church said, amen. amen. Worship ministry, you ought to be in your place. Get up there. Now wait for me to hush. I want to pray for you. Father, you know the fatigue, the weakness of life in trials, out of trials, health, family, relationships, jobs, uh, discouragement. You know, you know how we faint, how we become weary in well-doing. You told us not to, but we do. We do. And I usually hear you say, I'm not asking you to do more work. I'm asking you to wait on me. The work is mine. It's not yours. The work is mine. The church is mine. Souls are mine. I supply the energy. I supply the strength. I supply the resources. Why don't you wait on me? Have I ever failed? to supply you with renewal and the exchange. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You give strength to your people. You've not asked us to grit our teeth and tough it out. You've told us if you'll wait, you'll glide. You'll, you'll work harder than ever, but it will be on the wind currents of my spirit. Oh, Father, renew us, lift us up, lift us up so that we do this work in the energy of the Spirit of God. And Potter, we come to you. Mold us, make us. And if there's anything in us, if we've been running around with another God, I hope it's made us sick and tired that it can't hear, can't heal, can't give me energy. But hanging out with you is the energy I need. I pray, Father, strengthen your lambs, strengthen your people today. Let us stand as we sing. We're in the potter's camp.